Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation and Cancer Care. And there are a number of other organizations, both cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations that also um, are listed on your program as well, um, but I do want to just give a special call out to the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation, and you'll be hearing more about them um, as the call goes on. Um, and um, really, it's because of our collaboration with the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation and others as well that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So we have over 385 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, so from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Spain, and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Seattle Genetics and the Diana Napoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Lauren Pinter-Brown. Dr. Brown is Health Sciences Professor of Medicine and Dermatology, Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of California, Irvine. And Dr. Pinter Brown will be addressing um, an overview of mycosis fungoides, um, current standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, treatment options, how to choose which treatment option is best for you, and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pinter Brown. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to give a brief overview of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and specifically mycosis fungoides because it is the most common of all the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. The other common kind is called CD30-positive lymphoproliferative disorder, and I'll briefly touch on that as well. So mycosis fungoides is a funny-sounding name. It comes to us from the 1800s from a French dermatologist who thought the lesions looked like a fungus, but truly it's not a fungus. It's a T-cell lymphoma that is most commonly found in the skin, and it is the most common kind of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. What separates it from many of the other cutaneous T-cell lymphomas is the love of the, the malignant cells for going to the very top of the skin, the epidermis, uh, where, it is some, where the cells are sometimes seen in a collection called a potrase microabscess. When we look at the slides under the microscope or we look at different patients, we see that mycosis fungoides can take on a lot of different kinds uh, of appearances, both under the microscope and in the patients. So it's quite a challenge sometimes to diagnose. About 5% of all cases of mycosis fungoides uh, are, are patients that have uh, lesions that are all red um, and they may have blood involvement, and that disorder is called Cesare syndrome, again named after another French dermatologist a little bit later in the 1900s. Um, these patients may have completely red skin, uh, some enlarged lymph nodes, 
scaling um, and thickness of the skin in the palms and the soles of their feet, some changes in their nails, sometimes swellings of the legs, and changes in their eyelids. When we talk about the other common set of disorders, CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorders, these disorders look really different. Um, they look different under a microscope, and they look different when we look at the patient. And they comprise two main disorders, one called lymphomatoid papulosis, which is um, like little things that look like bug bites. They come up as crops, and they come and they go all on their own. And, and a, another part of the spectrum is something called primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma. While lymphomatoid papulosis lesions are always under the size of a quarter, these are lesions that come up by themselves, bigger than a quarter, kind of a domed lesion, sometimes with a little ulceration or a pustule in the, set, in the center. And they may also spontaneously regress, uh, but, but sometimes need a little help from therapies. So what are our therapies for these disorders? We have lots, um, and they're mainly broken up into two kinds. One kind I would call skin-directed, that is, it's something that you're shining or putting on the skin, and the other would be a group of treatments which I'll call systemic because either the person takes them in orally um, or injects them or has them injected, uh, and they go throughout the body treating you know, everywhere where the organs, blood, skin may be involved. So when we look at skin-directed therapies, there's many kinds, including putting steroid creams, putting other kinds of creams, including those that sometimes contain chemotherapy, although it does not get absorbed into the patient. It just stays on the skin. Um, things that are related to vitamin A, these are called retinoids. And sometimes uh, light therapies are utilized uh, for, the, for these disorders. For patients that have um, more advanced disease or who don't respond to skin-directed therapies, that's when we would use systemic therapies. And there's a whole long list of them. Um, and of interest, the top of the list doesn't contain chemotherapy. There's a lot of different kinds of modalities that have been studied and approved for patients specifically with mycosis fungoides that are really unique um, to this disorder and, you know, are not seen by the general oncologist, not something that, that is utilized in general oncology. So how do we go about figuring out which treatment to pick if we have all these choices? So one thing that we look at is what stage the patient is. If the patient has very early stage disease, that is uh, lots of areas of normal skin, but perhaps some patches or plaques of abnormal skin, we're going to pick topical therapies or skin-directed therapies primarily. For other patients, we might pick systemic therapies, and these are based on a whole host of considerations, including what's convenient for the person, what's available to the person, what are the short and long-term side effects of that particular treatment, and how does it dovetail with other medical conditions that the person might already have. And something that is kind of unique in this area of treatment uh, that we don't see in other areas of oncology is that we may use the same modality more than once, as long as the condition did not progress while the patient was using that modality. So we might go back, for instance, to light therapy over and over and over again. 
uh, also when we look at the therapies, there is a certain probability that uh, a given person will have a response given <clears throat> what kinds of skin disease they have, and there is um, a difference in the time of onset of response for different treatments. And we may utilize that as well when we're trying to pick a particular treatment for an individual at a particular time. Other considerations are preserving the patient's immune system as much as possible, as in all lymphomas there's an interaction between the patient's immune system and the condition itself. In general, though many people are on various combinations of therapies, most of these haven't really been studied in combination that well. Uh, many people ask, are there new treatments coming about uh, for mycosis fungoides, for CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorder? And yes, we actually have two new treatments that were FDA approved specifically for these disorders within the last year. One is a drug called branduximavidotin, and the other is a drug called mogomeluzumab. I know it's a, a long name. Brentuximavidotin is um, a drug that has an antibody that attaches to something called CD30 on the cells of the on the surface of the cells, uh, and is in combination with a very weak chemotherapeutic agent. So the drug gets drawn to a cell that has CD30 on its on its surface, uh, just like a lock and key, and then the cell takes up the compound, and the chemotherapy then goes to work killing the cell. And while that is a drug that's used for other disorders in oncology, um, there was a specific trial called the Alcanza trial uh, in which we saw that brentuximavidotin was very useful for cutaneous T-cell lymphomas that express CD30 on their surface. And that includes mycosis fungoides uh, and the CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorders. <clears throat> the other new drug that we have called mogomeluzumab is an antibody against something called CCR4, again, something that's on the cell surface. Uh, and that was a drug that was approved in this country, in U.S., uh, for the treatment of mycosis fungoides and for Cesare syndrome. And there was a phase three trial as well that allowed that approval. It's called the MAVERICK trial. And what we see with mogomeluzumab is that it's a drug that is extremely good at clearing out people's blood when there's cells in the blood and as well taking care of skin lesions. Going forward, of course, there's going to always be trials for patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and participation in these trials is what allows everyone else to benefit from drugs that are then marketed and for general use. I think if we want to look at compounds that are in clinical trial uh, that we might focus on, one would be uh, reziquimod. Reziquimod is a uh, topical therapy, um, and it is, uh, will be going into phase three trial. The phase one trial just closed. Another a drug that one might focus on would be nib, which is a, a sick JAK kinase inhibitor. Another drug, copamarsin, is an inhibitor of a microRNA. And finally, there's anti-CARE 3 DL2, which is another drug that looks like it's particularly good at clearing out blood. And I know all these things kind of sound like gobbledygook when you look at the names, but I think the importance is that there's lots of clinical trials in this arena and that each one of these drugs works in a totally separate manner. So the 
clinical trials that are ongoing are really looking at very unique kinds of treatments, some of which haven't been seen in other areas of oncology, to advance the options that we have uh, for, for patients with these disorders. I think I'll stop here and let my colleagues speak further. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Tinted Brown. That was really extraordinary. Just a wonderful overview of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and really um, about the sort of treatments and what's new. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Noor. Dr. Noor is a dermatologist, Department of Dermatology, clinical expertise in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Noor will be addressing practical tips to manage side effects, discomfort, and pain, sun safety tips and care of your skin, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Noor. Um, thank you, uh, Carolyn, for the opportunity to participate in this um, educational session. Um, I'm fortunate to uh, work in a multidisciplinary group with oncologists, um, radiation oncologists, and nurses who provide sort of comprehensive care to our cutaneous lymphoma patients. Um, so as you mentioned, I'll be going over some general skin care tips um, as well as address some specific skin-related concerns that we see in mycosis fungoides, um, including itching, infection prevention, um, wound care, and I'll touch a little bit about some of these side effects related to treatment. Um, but before I begin, I do want to reiterate what was said before me by Dr. Pinter-Brown that mycosis fungoides is sort of a heterogeneous condition um, and disease with no standard one treatment approach and our understanding of the pathogenesis of this continues to grow and with the um, advent of all these newer antibodies and targeted treatments as well as clinical trials, there are many sort of possibilities for individualized treatment plan. Um, and in all stages, a combination of, of skin-directed or topical treatments and systemic treatments or treatments from inside out can be used to um, control the skin as well as internal disease and ultimately improve um, patient symptoms and quality of life. So moving on to some general skincare tips, um, whether you have early stage kind of thin patches or you have more widespread redness, um, uh, which we call erythroderma, a gentle skincare regimen is sort of extremely essential to preserve the skin barrier, um, to prevent infections and improve symptoms such as itching and pain. Um, Whenever I see a new patient with mycosis fungoides or um, Cesare syndrome, in addition to coming up obviously with the treatment plan, one of the most important discussions we have is on their daily skincare routine. Um, even things that seem somewhat intuitive, such as bathing and moisturizing. For example, how often are they bathing or showering? For how long? What's the temperature of the water? Um, a lot of our recommendations come from studies from other common um, skin conditions that similarly have inflammation in the skin and this sort of impaired skin barrier, such as eczema or psoriasis. Um, so a few more sort of practical tips that I'm sure a lot of the audience members, um, if you have, um, if you interact with dermatologists and oncologists um, with this condition, we generally recommend sort of short showers, five to 10 minutes um, over baths as longer water exposure can kind of decrease the natural oil barrier of the skin. Um, similarly, we recommend kind of lukewarm, not very hot showers as that can be drying to the skin. Um, the choice of soap is also important as um, 
as that can sort of increase the likelihood of dehydrating and even irritating the skin. So we usually recommend moisturizing uh, fragrance-free soaps. And while washing, it's important to avoid aggressively scrubbing at the skin as this can kind of strip the skin of natural oils and also even traumatize the skin barrier and that makes you more at risk for developing um, infections of the skin. And then after showering, the most important thing is to apply a moisturizing cream. Um, preferably while the skin is still damp, as this really does help seal in the moisture. Um, you know, moisturizers have ingredients that basically help retain water and also replace sort of the, um, the fat and oils that are found in the superficial layers of the skin and help hydrate the skin. Um, ideally, the best choice are things that are kind of more greasy ointments, such as Vaseline or Aquaphor, um, but I do find that most of my patients um, find it a little bit too heavy to apply all over the body, um, although it might be good for certain areas that are particularly dry and cracked um, skin, including the hands and feet. Um, creams tend to be more tolerable uh, in that respect, and they're definitely better than lotions in terms of the amount of sort of um, um, ceramides or oils that help sort of hydrate the skin. Um, and just like with soaps, we recommend using more fragrance-free creams. Um, there's a whole, you know, host of them available over the counter, um, including Eucerin, CeraVe, uh, Cetaphil, Vanacream, just to name a few. But, um, you know, any of these uh, would be acceptable options. And in terms of other sort of general recommendations, we really want to sort of avoid any sort of further irritant exposure to the skin. So we recommend things such as using unscented laundry detergent, um, avoiding sort of fabric softeners, cotton clothing and sheets over wool. Um, use of humidifiers can also um, prevent the skin from becoming too dry. Um, one important thing I always tell my patients is that if you have sort of cracked open skin or open sores, this allows for any sort of irritants to get into the skin and even you can develop somewhat more of an allergy to things. Um, and before I go on to some other topics, one of the main things I really get asked in terms about moisturizers and using topical medications, um, some of which Dr. Pinter Brown mentioned, um, is really which to apply first. Um, and you know, with the use of these, the topical vitamin A derivatives, the topical chemotherapy, um, or topical um, agents, kind of the main side effect that we do see is that it can cause some irritation to the skin. And so I often say it's, it's kind of advisable to apply this separate from the moisturizer when the skin is dry um, because applying moisturizer right after applying um, these medications can potentially increase the irritation um, and also potentially can spread the, uh, the medication to other areas of the skin that are not as involved. Um, and with topical steroids, um, sort of similarly, but if you have sort of thicker areas that you are applying the, the steroid cream to, applying a moisturizer right after may actually help um, increase um, the absorption of the topical steroid. So that might be um, helpful in certain areas. So um, I'll now move on to itching. And so as many of you or your family members experience, itching is, is, is a major concern really at all stages of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma or mycosis fungoides, um, even in early stage, and it can have a huge impact on your quality of life. And while sort of the main uh, sort of treatment of itching is treatment of the underlying disease, um, we also have several supportive measures that we can try, as sometimes the itching can take 
some time to improve um, with starting treatments. Um, topical steroids, which is also a form of treatment, um, can, can be used to help with the itching aspect or using over-the-counter creams that have anti-itch properties um, that have sort of camp, camphor, menthol, um, such as sarna, can be soothing. Um, if these aren't working, we often start with sort of basic sort of anti-itch measures such as antihistamines um, to see if that sort of adds any benefit without, um, you know, causing a lot of interactions with medications or um, side effects. And, you know, if those medications are not working, then, you know, I will have a discussion with patients about different oral medications that can be used to sort of target different pathways of itching. Um, I do want to emphasize that some of these medications that these medications are really not being used on label for itching um, and sort of the evidence behind these being helpful is really based on either it's their use in other itchy skin conditions or in small sort of reports um, in mycosis fungoides and they can potentially have other side effects so it's important to have a kind of a thorough discussion with your dermatologist and oncologist and whether these would be good options for you but these include things such as um, gabapentin or pregabalin, which targets the nerve component of itching, and then there are other agents um, that target other pathways of itching, um, such as a prepotent or naltrexone that are used for other um, indications but have shown some benefit in mycosis fungoides. So these are all things that can sort of be used, um, obviously, as an adjunct to, to your main treatment. And then sort of moving along to infection prevention. Um, one of our major concerns in patients with mycosis fungoides is, is this development of skin infections. And part of this may be related to the skin barrier being impaired, but also um, the immune system and immune cells um, sort of not functioning as well in those areas. Um, and there have been studies that have shown that the skin bacteria um, can colonize the skin of mycosis fungoides, can also live in the nose and play a role um, not only in skin infections, but also causing kind of more flaring and redness of, of the natural skin um, in mycosis fungoides um, and can also contribute to things such as itching. And so one thing we do go over are sort of measures to, I guess, decolonize the skin um, in the form of bleach baths, for example, even doing a quarter to half cup of regular strength bleach in a full tub of water doing this even two to three times a week can decrease the bacteria that's living on the skin um, and improve redness and itching of skin lesions. Um, in patients who are getting sort of frequent skin infections, I will sort of have a discussion about swabbing the nose to check for bacteria, and then we can do um, what we call uh, decolonization of the nose where the bacteria lives, um, which involves using an antibiotic ointment. Um, and then in terms of in terms of sort of side effects, um, all of these skin-directed and systemic treatments um, can have both expected and unexpected side effects that can be managed, and so it is really important to have a discussion about all of those. Um, specifically, for some of the topical treatments, the main sort of side effect we do see is skin irritation, which, which can be managed by either stopping or decreasing the frequency of using the treatment. Um, as Dr. Pinter Brown mentioned, phototherapy, um, which is which is typically um, well tolerated, um, the possibility of having some redness or irritation after starting again can be managed by starting at a lower dose or holding treatment. 
um, radiation can, with our newer, um, with newer sort of radiation dosing regimens, um, some of the side effects that we used to see more with more irritation, skin blistering, um, hair and nail changes are sort of less common, but all certainly um, possible. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of these other medications have various other side effects that are sort of important to um, discuss with the dermatologist and oncologist. Um, one thing I will highlight with, with treatment is that, um, you know, patients who do have some of these kind of thicker areas of tumors, um, that can often be a source of pain. Um, it can be cause, um, you know, odor, bleeding, and, and a risk uh, for infection. And sometimes these can open on their own or they may worsen a little bit after starting treatment as they're breaking down. And there are various ways to sort of manage it, um, either with the help of the dermatologist or a, a kind of a wound care um, specialist. Um, and there's things that we can do to help with the pain, um, things that we can do to help sort of clean the wound, um, facilitate wound healing. We do use topical, um, oral and, and antibiotics that we apply on the skin to help decrease bacteria and odor and um, use certain dressings that basically help absorb some of the fluid and help with wound healing. So um, I will stop there and um, I guess turn it back to my colleagues. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Noor. That was really excellent and very comprehensive and um, very informative to people. And I know there'll be questions for you in terms of um, the management of, of these of the lesions and things So during the Q&A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Susan Thornton. And Ms. Um, Thornton is with the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. She's the CEO. And we're delighted to be uh, partnering with uh, the with Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation today on today's program. And uh, Ms. Thornton is going to be addressing Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation's free programs. And I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Thornton. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to uh, our clinicians today for sharing their insights and their information. It's really great to be partnering with our friends at Cancer Care and able to bring this program to everyone. Uh, I'm Susan Thornton from the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation, and just as a, a quick update for those of you who may not be familiar with our organization, uh, we have a lot of information on our website, including listings of clinical trials and a lot of videos that can go into more detail on all of the topics that were already discussed here today. So if you have a chance, feel free to go out to the website, which is um, clfoundation.org and, and learn a little bit more uh, based on the topics talked to today and a lot of other information related to cutaneous lymphoma and treatments and all the different variations of the disease. And just to let everyone know that we host a variety of live programs around the country. Uh, we have our big two-day patient conference coming up this weekend, as a matter of fact, in Manhattan Beach in California in the Los Angeles area, and it's free. All of our programs are free to patients and their family members, and if you're in the LA area, uh, I would encourage you to come and join us. We have quite uh, a variety of, of Speakers, Dr. Pinter Brown will be with us as one of our, our speakers, as well as a number of other folks talking about the uh, disease itself uh, and surrounding issues like insurance and quality of life and so forth. So, uh, again, if you're in the area, please come and join us. And we do a series of other 
one-day programs and evening programs around the country. We tend we live stream those, so if you can't participate, you can view them from the comfort of your home. And we've been conduct hosting monthly Facebook Live programs, which are interviews on specific topics every month, although we're taking a break this month in June, but we'll be back in July. So you can find out all of that information on our website, and again, all of our programs are free for anyone who's impacted by cutaneous lymphoma. And our our goal is to bring you the best and most up-to-date information so that you can make the best decisions for your care as you learn to live with and deal with uh, cutaneous lymphoma. So thank you again, Dr. Mester, and to all the folks at Cancer Care for collaborating with us and being our partners uh, in helping to support patients living with cutaneous lymphoma. Back to you. Well, thank you, well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Thornton, and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. Um, certainly uh, just a, a great resource, and and please take advantage of it. And I, I must say that any resource that we mentioned during the program, you'll be getting an evaluation after the program, probably tomorrow, and the evaluation will include all the information you need about um, the lymphoma, these cutaneous lymphoma foundations so that you can access it. Um, I will, however, give you their website is um, clfoundation.org, um, and their telephone number is one two four eight six four four nine zero one four. The website is accessible to all of you, and please take advantage of it. And you'll be getting that as a resource as well at the end of the uh, in your evaluation form. So we won't say anything that you won't be able to get hold of. Um, um, so it'll be a resource to all of you. So I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from all of you. Um, and it's a wonderful group today, so please do um, prepare your questions. Uh, cancer care is a national organization. We're staffed by oncology social workers providing psychosocial support to people um, living with all cancers and um, with, with CTCL as well, of course. And we um, offer um, both... Um, an opportunity to talk to our social workers on the telephone or online, and as well as an opportunity to actually participate in any of our support groups, both telephone and online support groups. And um, so those are accessible, those are free services to all of you. We also run these workshops quite regularly so that you can certainly participate in one of these workshops, and we're delighted to have this program today. It's so important um, to all of you. And um, we also um, have various publications that we produce, and fact sheets, and of course our website. So with that all being said, we do now have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Norma to explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So Norma, thank you. please bring all of our speakers on board as well. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Giselle H. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, the question I had was, could somebody address how the new drug, that MOGA, uh, affects if you were to consider having a stem cell transplant in the future? Well, thank you for that question. I'm Dr. Pinter-Brown. Could you address that question? Sure. That's that's a great question. So the cells that uh, mogomeluzumab uh, attacks are called Treg cells, and they have to do in, in transplantation when you're getting a transplant where somebody else is providing 
your new immune system with uh, obtaining graft-versus-host disease. So there's a concern that this drug in close proximity to what's called an allogeneic transplant would increase graft-versus-host disease, which we want a little of, but not a lot. Um, ways to circumvent that would be to distance the drug from the transplant. Uh, other things that can be done are uh, alterations in the way that the drugs post-transplant are given to cut down on graft-versus-host. Thank you. Um, and um, we, oh, yes. Our next question comes from Stephen Jones. Jay, your line is open. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Printer Brown. Um, there was a recent article or a paper presented at ASCO about the response to Prituximab. It didn't seem to uh, correlate with the amount of CD30 seen on biopsies. Given that, how do you uh, choose patients uh, to give uh, Prituximab? Another great question. Um, I, I tend to move it earlier in patients that have some CD30 expression. We have to realize that in the trial, CD30 expression was defined as 10%. It's not very high. Um, and that's how I do it. Others may have um, a different approach. Uh, but given all the different options that patients have, that's how, how I prioritize. It makes sense, though, that, that these kinds of drugs work even though you cannot see CD30 on the biopsy because seeing CD30 on the biopsy requires a lot of molecules for a, um, a pathologist to actually be, be able to see under a microscope. But it may be, in fact, that only a few of these molecules is an, or on, are enough for the drug to attach to the cell and then be effective. And that's most likely why it works in patients that have, quote, CD30 negative disease. Thank you. And with a question from our online participants, um, uh, for Dr. Noor, could you speak about sun protection and care for us in general, and perhaps especially those of us in light therapy? Yeah. So, um, you know, the most common type of light therapy that is um, given is uh, narrowband ultraviolet B light therapy, and um, you know we. It's generally the way we sort of give it, it is like getting natural sunlight in a more concentrated fashion. And for it to be very effective, we do recommend starting at two to three times a week at sort of a, a low dose, but um, slowly increasing to the point where the skin does clear. Um, in terms of sun protection, um, when we have the, the amount of, of sunlight, of the ultraviolet B light that you are receiving in this treatment, it, it's not too extensive that we would worry about, um, you know, sort of increasing your risk for um, skin cancer, but we do, you know, closely monitor and do um, have you be seen by a dermatologist for skin checks. In terms of sun protection, you know, in areas that are not involved, such as the face, I do recommend, um, you know, covering the face or wearing sunscreen during treatment, and then to be more diligent, um, in the summer months with, with sun protection um, so that you're not getting too much sun exposure um, in addition to the ultraviolet B light. For patients that are sort of well controlled, we can even take breaks during the summer as you're getting a little bit of that natural sunlight. Excellent, thank you. Um, so here's another question um, for Dr. Noor. What about sun protection outside? In terms of 
um, outside, like outdoors, like I think the question. Yeah, so in terms of specific sunscreen recommendations, um, you know, we would recommend doing at least um, sun protection factor of 30 up to 50. Um, and the important thing is to, to reapply the sunscreen, especially if you're going to be out for prolonged periods of time. Um, and then really the use of hats and um, sort of uh, full clothing that covers um, the areas is what we would recommend. Um, there are certain medications such as the oral retinoids, um, such as bexerotene, that can make you a little bit more sensitive to sunlight. Um, whether or not that's in conjunction with the light therapy that we just sort of caution even further to make sure that you're wearing sunscreen as well as sun protective clothing. Thank you. Thanks. And um, our next question, Norma? Is from Suzanne N. Your line is open. Suzanne, your line is open. Oh, um, thank you. Um, I was diagnosed a year ago with um, stage one Montgomery's fungoides. I had the nodule excised, and it's a year later. I've had no further outbreaks. And my question is, at this level, what kinds of things do I need to discuss with my doctor as in testing or things that need to get done to figure out where I am at? Thank you. Um, Dr. Pinter-Brown, could you address this? Um, I I think probably the most important thing is to follow up with your physician. Um, Make sure you tell them how you feel and have them examine you. And if you see any new kinds of skin lesions, uh, that you come in uh, quickly so that that can be assessed. I can... Yes, please. I was going. I was just going to agree with with that. I think the most important thing is sort of assessment of the skin, and based on that, additional testing if needs to be done. How often should people be coming in? For example, this person it's been a year. So, what is the usual follow up, um, or is there a usual follow up for? Um, I. Um, oh, go ahead. No, it's fine. I, I I would say it's probably different for every physician and patient, uh, depending on, you know, what what was initially seen, and how uh, how big the concern is that something's going to come back. Um, you know, I would probably see someone every few months to every six months, but I think it would widely vary on the particular patient, and I'm sure uh, between different physicians. And Dr. Noor, did, I'm sorry, I think you're... Um, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think that especially with a new patient who we are sort of starting on either a new skin-directed or systemic therapy, um, definitely more frequent follow-up until we do have um, disease control and then when things are more stable, um, spacing out the visits. Um, but I always tell my patients that if they notice anything that is different on the skin, um, or feeling different otherwise, that, that they should be coming sooner. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, a question from one of our online participants, um, for Dr. Pinter-Brown. Can you describe relative risk-benefit effectiveness between eczema laser versus UVB for stage 1 AB CTCL? Hmm. 
I may ask my colleague, Dr. Noor, about this a little bit, but eczema laser is is something that's applied locally to one lesion, whereas if you get phototherapy with narrowband UVB, you're treating very large areas of skin. So I'm not sure they can be totally equated. As far as, so you asked for um, efficacy, uh, risk and benefit. There's also not very much published about eczema laser. Uh, I'll defer to Dr. Knorr uh, for any other further comments. Thank you. Yeah, I... I I do. Um, I agree with with that. I think um, you know. I think that a lot of our what we know, um, what we've sort of studied is the efficacy specifically of the narrowband ultraviolet B and the idea that it may be treating a broader range and maybe even helping prevent new areas from appearing. Um, I, in terms of the eczema laser, um, it has. There have been mostly just small sort of case reports of it being used for solitary lesions um, but it so I don't I agree that I don't know if they really you know there's it's it's hard to say if there's really a, a lot of benefit from the eczema laser based on what we do know great questions and and wonderful speakers to address them so thank you so much I'm sure this is very helpful um, so um, So this is a question um, from one of our online participants. I am just starting to use Tocitino, also known as Alicetanon. I am taking 30 milligram tablets. So far, the only side effects that I have noticed are more itching and some fatigue at the end of the day. Should I expect more side effects? Also, how long before I may expect to see some skin clearing while using this drug? So if Dr. Um, Pinter Brown, if you could address this in a general way just to start, uh, just in a general way. Uh, um, I'm sorry, the, the drug was Soriatane or? Um, T-O-C-I-T-O-C-T-I-N-O uh -oh. or A-L-I-T-R-E-T-I-N-O-I-N. Okay. So I think uh, a, a little primer on retinoids. So we have different drugs that are in this class called retinoids, which is which means they have a structure similar to vitamin A, and that does not mean everybody should take vitamin A because it can be toxic. Uh, but there are things called panretinoids. They're primarily on the market uh, when you take them orally for acne, though they have been studied in mycosis fungoides. And then there's specific retinoids like bexerotene is a good example. And, and bexerotene only affects one of the retinoid receptors. It's called an RXR receptor. So when we look at all these different retinoids, it turns out that they're not all the same depending on what receptors they hit. And bexerotene, I think, is, is a more potent drug than maybe the panretinoids, although they will work. The studies done on panretinoids, of which this is one, um, they're really old studies from the 90s. Um, they, they're not very large groups of patients, so I'm not sure... Um, other than we know it has activity for this condition, we don't know the activity in the same granular way that we might for more modern studies that are larger uh, for which um, data was used to get drug approval. Uh, side effect-wise, as the dose goes up on panretinoids, they have very different toxicities than something like a, a rexinoid like bexerotene, uh, and primarily uh, what I sometimes see are uh, maybe cracking at the corners of the mouth, kind of dry skin, 
something called perinicii where the kind of the edge of the the skin around the nail becomes inflamed uh, but but often these are related to dose um, and the kinds of side effects that we see with other retinoids like bexerotine are really different. They, they're mainly things that you would pick up in the blood and the patient wouldn't notice. Um, again, I'll, I, I'll ask Dr. Knorr because dermatologists use panretinoids for all kinds of other conditions, and she may have more to say about the side effects. Yes. Um, so with panretinoids, I would say the majority, um, having used it for also for acne and um, other skin conditions. I would say that our most common side effect is, as you just mentioned, with sort of generalized dryness. Um, and that generalized dryness can potentially make you more itchy. So, um, but I would say that that's sort of the main, main side effect. Um, there are some other um, sort of not very um, specific and rare side effects um, that typically are not seen um, in most most use of oral retinoids. Um, but in terms of in terms of the sort of generally with efficacy, um, you know, I will say that you know there's no exact time for a medication to start working per patient, but there, you know, it may not be something that works sort of immediately in our mycosis fungoides patients. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for um, actually for both Dr. Um, um, Pinter Brown and Dr. Noor. Um, what is more effective, the um, the Velcor, the A L C H L O R, I get at my pharmacy, or a compounded nitrogen mustard? Mm -hmm. uh, they've never been compared. The Valclor, the, the the primary difference is that, well, there's many differences, but the primary difference in terms of efficacy is the Valclor only comes in one strength. And compounded nitrogen mustard, when we utilized it, could be used in different strengths. So it allows a little more flexibility in how you treat people. Um, the other big differences are obviously that compounded nitrogen mustard is much harder to come by. Valclor is a, a drug that's you know, in a tube, and you can take it off a, um, a, a pharmacy shelf. And they're, they're also in uh, different uh, kind of vehicles. Valclor is in a gel, so it's easier to spread, and compounded nitrogen mustard most commonly is put in something that's kind of like, um, like Eucerin or Aquaphor. So uh, we don't know which one's more effective. Uh, they're just different. Uh, Dr. Noor, what do you think? I, I agree. I think a lot of um, the efficacy really depends on when the compounded is, is how much concentration of the medication is actually there and the base. Um, I typically have, we also will see it more in a Vaseline or a petroleum jelly base, and that may help with absorption of, um, of, the, of the topical nitrogen mustard more so than, than a gel, but ultimately it does depend on the concentration of, of the nitrogen mustard within that, but. Okay. And um, a question from one of our online participants, and this one is for Dr. Noor at the start. How can I control the itching, whole body itching? So it it really depends. Um, you know, we are 
we do see itching at every sort of stage of mycosis fungoides, and the majority of time it does correlate to the extent of the skin disease and if you have any internal disease as well. Um, but sometimes we do also see the itching being a little bit um, separate from how much of the skin is involved, and so then we do really try to focus on and treat the itching. I would say the most important thing is to um, discuss with your physician, whether it's the dermatologist or oncologist, to see whether the itching, you know, how much of this is related to how well the skin and if, if applicable if the blood is being controlled. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there are things that we try that are topicals to help with itching. Um, we start with things that are basic in terms of antihistamines um, to see if that helps with itching. Um, and if that's really not controlling it, there are other things by mouth that we're just beginning to understand. And, and um, you know, these are not things that are approved for itching in, in mycosis fungoides, but that we're sort of beginning to understand and see some efficacy in itching. And, and they target various pathways of itching. Um, and I think then that's worth having that discussion. Thank you. And Dr. Pinter-Brown, did you want to add anything? Or? I, I think when we're um, approaching control of itching, we can look at it the same way as I talked about when we were talking about therapy. There are things that you can put on the skin, and there are things that you can take. So putting on the skin, probably the most important thing would be to make sure that the skin isn't dry by using emollients. Dr. Noor talked a lot about bathing and how you can um, make your skin less dry. Um, there's also things like, uh, she mentioned sarna lotion, which has eucalyptus in it, kind of gives the skin a different sensation than itching uh, so that the brain kind of stops perceiving the itching. Uh, when I'm t thinking about things that somebody would take internally, um, I tend to use less of the antihistamines and more of the drugs that we would typically think about using for um, nerve kinds of pain or, or sensation. Um, because uh, often the itching that is seen in, in patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is, is not based on histamine release like a bug bite, but, but more, it's more kind of like a pain uh, like that, that you would see uh, going along nerve fibers. And um, there really are a lot of different, both topical things that you would try, a whole list of them, and systemic things. Um, and I think most physicians um, that help people with mycosis fungoides or cutaneous T-cell lymphoma probably have a, a pretty good-sized toolbox of things that they can suggest to people, um, as, as do other patients. And I, I have learned uh, from, from patients some of the things that they use that I wouldn't necessarily think of that have been very helpful to other patients. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we have a lot of questions here, so I'll try to take a few more. Um, actually, um, so this question, um, so um, for Dr. Pinter-Brown, like to start, um, are any refinements of bentuximab vendontin itself or in its usage in the works or possible to make it more repeatable or with fewer or less severe side effects? Um, probably, probably the way I would answer that is um, I, I know that 
personally, as I use the drug more and more and more, um, I've altered the way that, that I utilize it, and it's uh, allowed people to stay on it longer. And primarily what, what I have found is that people can experience efficacy with a lower dose than what is you know, written in the package insert. And so at the least little bit of neuropathy, which is the primary side effect of brinduximab-vidotin that, that makes people stop the drug, I have no hesitation to lower the dose uh, because what I found is that that uh, prevents the neuropathy from getting worse and sometimes allows it to get better and allows people to stay on the drug for very long periods of time. When I speak to my colleagues, many other people have noticed the same. There's not, I don't think, a study looking at could you use a lower dose in in this particular patient population. But I think as all of us get to use it more and more in different patient populations, our practice will, will change. Uh, and that's true for all drugs. There's a learning curve when we get a hold of a drug, and we have to learn how the best way to use it is. That may not always be exactly the way that it's um, approved. One of, if I can add, um, one of the things that um, is being studied here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is led by um, um, Allison Moskowitz and uh, Stephen Horwitz, is looking at a lower dose of brentuximabidotin um, in a more standardized uh, study uh, for all sort of indications, including mycosis fungoides and other CD30 um, positive disorders, um, to see if a lower dose allows for the same, sort of supports what we have seen, what allows for the same efficacy in preventing some of the side effects, including the neuropathy. Um, this is a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, thank you. Um, another question, is CTCL, and for Dr. Pinter-Brown um, to start, limited to the skin, or does it progress to multiple organ involvement? Well, that's that's an interesting question. So. All lymphomas uh, come from cells called lymphocytes, and they're blood cells. So if we think in the abstract, even conditions like mycosis fungoides are systemic conditions. That is, the cells, in theory, have access to anything. But in fact, they really like being in the skin, and they have adhesion, what's called adhesion molecules, on their surface that makes them even stick in the skin, kind of like Velcro, for long periods of time. So, in fact, when we look at people that have cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, the majority of people <clears throat> only have disease that we can see in their skin, um, even though we know that the cells in a very, very small amount might be in other places like blood in such a small amount that we can't detect it with routine testing uh, like we do. And that's one of the reasons why people with mycosis fungoides are prevented from doing blood donations, as an example. So even though we have stages in mycosis fungoides, it's not at all common for someone to kind of progress through stages. That is, someone that has stage 1 disease should not expect to as time goes on, have more and more advanced disease. That's just not what happens. And there is a, one last, we have a last question, I think, for Dr. Pinter-Brown. Um, 
What rexinoid side effect was Dr. Pentagram referring to? She said they'd show up in the blood, but patient wouldn't notice or be aware of it. Does she mean anemia, neutropenia, other? Bexerotene, mm-hmm. uh, the most common side effect for over 80% of people is high fats in the in the blood. The fat is called triglycerides or low thyroid hormone. Sometimes we see neutropenia or other things, but that's really much, much less common. So it's very common to see people's triglycerides rise and their thyroid hormone to be low, and that's the reason why we monitor blood tests when people are getting that drug and and treat those side effects as they come up so that the person can continue using the drug uh, with effect. I want to thank our speakers. You've been really amazing, and I want to thank all of you who've asked questions both on the telephone as well as um, online. Um, it's been the questions have been really phenomenal. The questions they're great questions, and we've had um, you know, and we've had such great responses from our speakers. We literally could go on probably for another hour or so. Um, the questions are amazing, and uh, our speakers, of course, could of course address them. But we said this program would take an hour, so we're going to try to stay to that time. Um, however, I know that um, for those of you who asked questions or for those of you who haven't asked questions, so we, in terms of what to do with the information you have, so we hope that you've gathered really important information f- for yourselves, and we want you to take it back to your treating healthcare team. If you asked a question or if you didn't get to ask a question, still take those answers back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best, of course. In addition to that, um, for those of you who still have questions in two, I definitely would recommend that you, of course, get in touch with the uh, with the um, Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. I think it's a wonderful resource for all of you, and you'll be getting that information about them. Um, you know, that's a, it's a wonderful resource. It's an organization that specifically uh, is dealing with um, with this type of skin cancer, so it's very important that you would have that access to type of lymphoma. It's wonderful to have that access to this wonderful organization um, and their website. Um, in addition, um, for those of you who um, also want to call other places, you can contact the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have an 800 number, um, 1-800-422-6237. They also have a website uh, cancer, uh, cancer.gov, and that website has a live chat feature where you can post your question and they will attempt to answer your question with their information specialist, so you can have a back and forth discussion and they will go through their databases to get you the information you might need or want. Um, in addition, there are a host of other organizations, so you'll be getting all those resources from us. And for those of you who would like to pursue getting help from Cancer Care, simply call us at um, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with uh, cutaneous lymphoma or in coping with cancer in general. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. We're here to help you. So please, recognize, I know that there are moments when you all do sometimes feel alone, but also please know that we really that there are so many organizations that can be there to help you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.